Have you ever been in a difficult relationship? And you're like, duh. And then someone said amen and looked at their spouse, I think. I, that wasn't even in my head. <laughs> Maybe some of you have been in a difficult relationship that was even abusive. That person in our lives who was or maybe still is always passive aggressive with us or is always twisting things, using emotional blackmail to get their way, deceptive in their dealings, twisted in their communication, pressing their way, just plain mean. Maybe it's been a long-term relationship, one that you've tried to make work for many years. You're in that spot feeling like if you can just do what they want, the way that they want, consistently, the relationship will finally be good. It will finally be healthy and give you the joy and comfort and encouragement that you've been longing for. But the problem is, every time you think you're there, the goalposts seem to move. Or you do that one thing right and correct, but then they see some other spot, some other aspect of who you are and how you do what you do, and you get criticized for it, told that you've fallen short. It happens so often that you don't know which way is up. You don't know how to perform all that you're supposed to so that you are finally accepted, and you realize maybe far too late in the relationship that you're just never going to be enough. And if you've been in that kind of bad relationship and you were able to escape, you probably also know that it takes quite a bit of time to get over the effects. You can be skittish about other relationships, believing that the same guidelines are going to apply as that previous relationship, that it works the same way. And you begin to realize, if you've had an experience like this, that It takes time for wounds like that to heal. The wounds of trauma that can come from an unhealthy relationship and carry over into new one. It it, it takes time to break old ways of seeing and feeling and behaving. In Romans 6, Paul has been describing two realms that exist in this age. He's made clear that every human being on this planet is part of one or the other of these realms. Further, that you can move, thank God, he says, from the first realm into the second. The first realm is that of sin and death, a realm that is aided and abetted by the law and where you are a slave to sin and free from righteousness. The second realm is that of the Messiah and life, one that is aided and abetted by grace and where you are a slave to God and free from sin. And over the course of his argument thus far in Romans and in building the picture of these two realms, Paul has not spoken favorably of the law. That's probably an understatement because he has said the following. God disclosed his righteousness apart from the law. Chapter 3, verse 20. The law brings God's 
wrath, chapter 4, verse 15. Having slipped into history, the law actually caused violation of its own rules to increase, chapter 5, verse 20, and that disciples are no longer under the oppressive rule of the law, just as they are no longer under the oppressive rule of sin, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Like I said, understatement. But Paul has one more thing to say about the law before he's through. And he's doing this because he knows, he knows that people who have had a long-standing relationship with the law find it hard to break free. It's like that woman trapped in a bad relationship, but she just keeps going back thinking it's going to be different this time. But it's not. And Paul knows that. And he wants people released from the power and the rule of the law so that they may belong to another. One who will always treat them well. One who will deliver relational happiness and hope in a life of flourishing and fruitfulness. That is his aim in the text before us this morning, my family. And he starts out with a bit of a dig. When I went to seminary, we were in this cohort model of seminary. It was just me and seven other guys, and it was absolutely glorious. It was such an amazing, deep learning environment. In the first semester of seminary, we had this class called Reading the Greek New Testament. We were studying Romans 14 and 15. That was our lab. And after just a few weeks, the professor essentially handed the class over to us. One man would lead the class each week. And so this week came upon us, and Andy Lang, one of my classmates, was leading the class. And he was pointing out some things in the text. And then he looked directly at me and asked a question of me of the text. Now, I immediately panicked because I had no idea what Andy was on about in asking this question of the text. I couldn't see it. And there was this, have you ever been like called out in the middle of a room like that? And this uncomfortable silence kind of settles and all the people around you are like, kind of just slowly move away from you. Like, and so finally I just looked and I said, Andy, I, I have no idea. And he said, well, it's abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. In other words, you're a complete idiot. <laughs> and that's a bit what, you know, I never liked Andy after that, by the way. I... <laughs> Paul's a bit like Andy in the way that he puts this next point to the Romans in chapter 7, verse 1. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, my family, I mean, come on, don't you know? I mean, I'm sure you're with me on this one. It's obvious, right? The law only rules over someone while they are alive. Can we all agree that once you die, the power of the law over a person ends? I mean, can we? Surely we can. Is it not abundantly obvious to the most casual observer? I remember when I was a kid, I listened to this radio station called WCCO in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, and there was this show that would come on for about three minutes. It was kind of like a mini episode of Law and Order. And this guy would come on and he would say, point of law. Anybody else ever heard that radio? I'm the only one? <laughs> It'll still work. This is what Paul does next. He gives us a point of law to demonstrate the end of the rule and power of the law over someone who has died. For example, he says, verse 2, 
a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. Now, it's really fascinating, the, Paul, the word that Paul uses for married here, a married woman, because it's, and it's intricately tied to the point that he is trying to make. It's actually the conjunction of two words, under man. That's the word for married. What he's representing in the way he talks of marriage is that a woman is under the authority of a man, under the rule of a man within the legal institution of marriage. In this way, she is bound to her husband while he is still alive. However, if he dies, then, says Paul, the law is very clear. She is released as a direct contrast to bound. She's released from the law regarding her husband. She has no further responsibility regarding that relationship. It is overdone, kaput. Verse 3. So then, if she then becomes married to another man while her husband is living, she, she of course would be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. So that then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Again, I hear Andy Lang in my head. Abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. Of course, if the husband is alive and she starts living with some other dude, she's an adulteress. And of course, if he should die, she's free to remarry. She's not an adulteress. And it is in that phrase, verse 3 there, if he should die, that Paul tips his rhetorical hand for us now. He used the same verb to speak of death releasing a person from the rule of sin previously. And his phrase, free from that law now, recalls his language in chapter 6, verse 17 and 22 of freedom from the enslavement to sin. So so we see a pattern developing. Disciples of Jesus are no longer under the power of the law Chapter 6, verse 14, they're no longer under its ability to increase our sin. Rather, he's going to say, we have been liberated, liberated from the law of sin and death. Chapter 8, verse 2. In other words, family, we have been released from a really, really abusive relationship so that we might belong to another. Verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death. And we've already heard this from him before. In relation to the law, through the body of Messiah, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Friends, this is the heart of Paul's argument in verses 1 to 6. In this one paragraph in verse 4. He's now applying what he introduced in verse 1 and illustrated in verses 2 and 3. He wants us to see the thrilling news that we have been released from a really, really bad relationship that we might enter into a perfect relationship with a perfect bridegroom. And as he unpacks this, he gives us four truths. Four truths. First, Brothers and sisters. And I just love that. I love that he keeps reminding us that we're family in Jesus. He's talking to his family. Brothers and sisters, we have been put to death as regards the law. 
every single believer in and disciple of Messiah has been released from the rule and the power of the law over us to condemn and to curse us, Romans 8.1 and Galatians 3.13. And, and we have been released from the powerlessness of the law to change us, Romans 8.3. And I think it's this second bit in this relational picture that Paul has placed us within that is new and so helpful, the powerlessness of the law to change us. It's like that bad relationship that we've stayed in because we thought it would do us good and we don't know how to break free and we feel trapped like we can't move on. Have you, have you ever been in a relationship like that? Like you just think, this is where it's at. I know as crappy as this is, this has got to get better. This is what I need in my life. And it's never working out. And I think for many of us, the law functions that way in our lives. We're so used to relying on doing, on obeying as a way to change us. We're so used to it so that we might be accepted and approved maybe in our own estimation. I think this is how I can value myself. I can look in the mirror and live with myself as I set all these expectations and all these laws and if I just live up to them, then I'll be okay. Or that person will accept me or that person or that group will accept me and welcome me. And you live that way for so long with the law that at some point in your life you feel like you just can't move on because it's the only way you know how to live now. And if you don't live that way in a way that you think will make it possible for you to please others or please God, even though it's not working, you just, what other way is there? I just don't know another way. And Paul says, you're dead to that. Dead. Has no power over you any longer. To which we might say, how, Paul, how can that be possible? Second truth, God does this. God does this through the body of the Messiah. You were put to death. It was done to you in Jesus. And the way it was done to you was that you were in Messiah when he died, died on the cross. More on that at the end. Put a pin there. We're coming back to that at the end. Third truth. And the reason that God did this was so that you might belong to another. I've worked all week on this and it strikes me in this moment that I feel like I don't have words enough to say how absolutely amazing it is that I belong to Jesus. God did this so that I would belong to him that I'd be free from all of my law-keeping. You guys, I spent decades down that path. And he's freed me. And he wants to free you so that you belong to another. You see, that's the point of the illustration in verses two and three. Death ends one relationship so that a second is possible. And what an exchange this is. Dying to a deadbeat husband so that we might have the most glorious bridegroom that has ever been or ever will be. And who is he? Jesus, Paul makes it clear. Oh, I gave you a tip there. 
You belong to him who was raised from the dead. Again, who's that? Abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. It's Jesus. Consider what we've learned about these two relationships and two husbands as Paul styles them. The law as husband does what? Serves sin, puts us under its thumb, unleashes sin in us, brings death, multiplies unrighteousness, focuses on our effort and performance, makes us a slave to sin, and free as regards to righteousness, separates us from the Messiah, is fueled by effort and the flesh, creates fruit that is rotten and damning and sickening, leading up to and ending in hell and a lake of fire, while we experience the wrath of God forever. That's behind door number one, the newlywed show. But what about Jesus? In him, we bask in grace. We we wallow around in grace. We flourish under the rule of grace, reigning in life. He cultivates righteousness and goodness. He makes us a slave to God, free as regards sin. He puts us in union with him. He provides the fuel for our living through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, all of it leading to fruit like goodness and joy, love, peace, and all the rest, leading up to and ending in eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth with a marriage that will last forever. Well, we will forever feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb because there is no death in the one who was raised from the death. So there will be no death until to, uh, death until us to... Bleh. It's abundantly obvious to the most casual observer, isn't it? There will be no death until we part because he'll never die. And we will never die in him. And why has God done all of that? Why? What's the ultimate purpose? So that now, from that place, we may bear fruit for God. You see, it's not until we've been released from our abusive relationship to the law that we are free to live in the way that God intended for his people as a beautiful, sanctified, spotless, without any wrinkle or any such thing, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, as a beautiful bride. That we could live that way by his power. I read a story this past week about a woman. She had a very controlling and manipulative, a de facto partner in her life. Every day before he went to work, he would write a long list of all the chores that he expected her to do before he returned home. Chores like vacuum the floor and wash the dishes, iron his clothes, walk the dog, fix dinner, so forth. If she did not do those jobs every day to his satisfaction, he would verbally abuse her. He would call her lazy and useless. Sometimes he would prohibit her from leaving the house. So every day the poor woman worked tirelessly and fearfully to please him, hoping that she did everything on the list and did it to his satisfaction. Sadly, she rarely did. And daily, she was scolded for some failure. 
Eventually she left him and was soon married to a lovely and caring man. He worked in insurance in the city while she kept the house and managed their internet business. Her husband never wrote a horrid list of all the things he expected her to do while he was at work. He never complained about what she had done or not done, and they worked out their differences with give and take. All of it while at times she would be fearful of what he might do or what he might say despite his love and care, almost flinching emotionally, operating in the same space that she had before. It took a long time for that to wear off. Many years later, the woman found one of those lists that her ex-partner had written, complete with dozens and dozens of chores. She could not help but cry as she noticed that she was still doing all the things on the list. Those same routines, still working hard to keep a nice home, but she was no longer motivated by fear or abuse, but spurred on by devotion to her husband to make their lives happy together. Do you see? God has such a better relationship in mind for us. Such a better life in store for us. And to lay hold of it, we have to remember, Paul says, not only who we are, but who we were. Verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. See, this is us before Death. This is us before Jesus, us before rescue, us before grace and life, us in the flesh prior to union with the Messiah in his death and resurrection. This is the picture. And who we were was powerless before the reign of the sin and the law. Do you remember last week how we talked about the pattern of teaching in chapter 6, verse 17 that that shapes and forms us and and puts an impression on us like those cookie cutters that my kid used for the sugar cookies? The word that Paul is using here is very similar to that word from chapter 6, verse 17. The word, these sinful passions, speaks to experiences that are hard and difficult and troublesome, that, that have a passive effect. That they're things that act upon us in this way, these sinful passions, the sin and the law, that together form harmful impressions within us, shaping impulses to respond in ways that are displeasing to God. The law arouses such things. And you know, I think one of the most harmful things that these sinful passions arouse in us is a distrust of God's word of grace over us. Maybe because we've been so used to our bad relationship with the law, so used to performing, we just find it almost impossible to believe it's all of grace, all of it. Not 92%. Not 99.7358%, all grace. We can even convince ourselves at times that such a passion like this is laudable and 
commendable even to distrust that it's all because I, you know, I just got to push myself. You can't just tell people it's just all a grace. How's anything going to get done? But friends, any distrust of any aspect of God's good news is a rejection of God and his good news. And once we allow that and other kinds of passions or impressions to operate on us and in us, passive though they may be at the first, they start to work their way through our members and bear fruit, Paul says, for death. But that is who we were, dear friends. Can we leave that guy behind? It is not who we are. It is not where we are. It's not who we belong to. But now... Verse 6, we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. I wonder if you hear the echoes of Romans 6 still reverberating. We have been released. We have died to what held us, that to which we were a captive and enslaved to sin and the law used by sin to increase the trespass. And all of that release and freedom is so that we might serve huh that that word translated serve there I don't know why Bible translations do this sometimes it's the same word that is used to be enslaved to God same word here it's serve but that misses Paul's continuing thought we we are released so that we may slave away in the newness of the spirit he adds a new dimension to it how will such service and slavery be empowered how is it possible to be properly motivated in this new relationship and be healthy only by the newness of the spirit and and that word isn't new to us either is it newness We, we saw it before in chapter 6 verse 4 with that we were raised just like the Messiah so that we may walk in newness of life. And so we learned there, right, that that was a whole new category of a similar kind, a whole new way of being, new creation. So, so let's follow and, and let's celebrate Paul's progression of thought so that we understand who we are. We were buried with Messiah by baptism into death and raised to live in newness of life. Similar, but new. New creation, whole new category and type. And now we see that in that death, we died to a deadbeat husband called the law so that we might belong to another and bear fruit for God. Literally to produce actions and consequences befitting our new nature according to kind. It's like an apple tree bears apples and not oranges. This is who we are now. Belong to Jesus. Of course you'd see fruit of grace in my life. It's the kind of tree I am. Furthermore, we discover that the way that we slave away at this is not through our own power. To somehow screw up our courage and all of our energy to bear fruit. Maybe wondering, because of our previous abusive relationship, if we're ever going to be able to get the list done in the way that pleases God. Can we just all say right now, listen to me, God is the only one who gets his to-do list done. Not us. Maybe I should go home and delete to-doist and iCal off my computer. 
Maybe I can be freed, released from the rule of my calendar. You could pray for me. (laughs) You see, we're doing a new thing with a new power. I need to remember that, and I think you do too. We're doing a new thing with a new power. What did you sing this morning? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, Lord, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence. A new power. We cannot do this on our own. I remember John Bunyan wrote a poem. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Hallelujah. And the wings are the Spirit of God. We're doing this in the newness of the Spirit. God with us, God in us, God working it out even as we work it out, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. And we're doing this not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Messiah is our husband and we want to. This is the glorious, monumental, world-transforming shift from the old letter of the law to the newness of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 18 is an absolutely mind-blowing, world-transforming text. Now, if the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters on stones, that, you guys, that is so amazing that that Paul would talk about the Ten Commandments that way. I wrote in my manuscript three pages ago, the law equals death, and then I scratched it up because I said, I can't talk that way. And then I saw this text. And I thought, Paul, you can't talk that way. And he said, yes, I can. If the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters on stones came with glory, and it did, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Is this not abundantly obvious to the most casual observer? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, and it did, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact... What had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Do you get how just he's like, man. Since then, we have such a hope, a hope. We act with great boldness. We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. 
But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Messiah. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the master, the veil is removed. The master is the spirit. And where the spirit of the master is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the master and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the master who is the spirit. Oh, yes. Yes and amen. We must, as a people, ask for God to immerse us in the work of the Holy Spirit. He is in you when you're a believer. Always. He is among us. Always. But it's not wrong to say, (laughs) make your presence known. Give us more. We want more. It's not wrong. I want I want Salida to be shaken, shaken by the power of the Spirit through you, through you. May it be so. Worship team, would you come up? Now, how, how was all of this, how is all of this possible, what we just saw? It's all possible because of love, because of love. Because the, the great bridegroom in a slavery to sin and death shattering act of love laid down his life to secure his bride. This is Romans 7, 4. You were put to death in relation to this horrible relationship to the abusive spouse called the law through the body of the Messiah so that you might belong to another. That is, you belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God in newness of the Spirit. Jesus died so that we could die with him and he was raised so that we could be raised with him so that gazing upon him, we could be transformed to look like him, to be like him. And, and it is this series of events that drove Paul to say there was this meal that Jesus gave us. And in commandment to what Jesus told me to do, I want to pass that along now to you. When writing to the churches, he, he recalled the events of the night when Jesus was betrayed. He says, writing to Corinth, on the night when he was betrayed, our master Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this and remember me. The one to whom you belong. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, this is interesting. Paul says, 
you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. See, isn't it, isn't this absolutely fantastic, you guys, what we've gotten in Romans 7, 1 through 6? It's like, now I know. Don't you want me to proclaim his resurrection, Paul? Yes, but I also want you to proclaim his death because now do you see everything that was opened up to you? Because he died. That's why you have to proclaim his death until he comes. And this does that. You see the glory that is bound up in what we celebrate here this morning as a family. We have been released from an abusive relationship to a glorious bridegroom and savior and king. And every time that we do this, these are the kinds of things that we're supposed to remember. Our minds aren't supposed to drift off to what's happening this afternoon. We're supposed to be thinking about Jesus right now. I'm going through the Lord of the Rings again, as everybody should multiple times in their lives. And I'm doing it this time on Audible, listening to Andy Serkis. Holy cow. Just tell this story. And I was reminded this week of a portion of that story one of the hobbit heroes named Pippin is, is standing at the gate of a fortress and the gate has been broken through and the demon king, this terrible villainous thing, is about to come in and is about to destroy all of the good people inside the fort. And just as it looks like the most terrible moment, like, like it's all over, suddenly Pippin hears horns in the distance. And maybe you know this if you know the story. There's horns, 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 just blaring. What are the horns? Well, they're the cavalry, basically, who have come. And, and the king of Rohan comes. And he, he rides to his death, but he saves the city. And we're told in the novel that from then on, for the rest of his life, whenever Pippin heard a horn blowing in the distance, he would burst into tears. Why? Because whenever he heard the horn, he thought about his salvation. He thought about a king who laid down his life. Of course, he, he spent all of his life going along saying, I, I know I've been saved. I, I remember the day that I was saved. I, I would have been dead if it wasn't for the king who rode to his death for my sake. I wouldn't be alive. But whenever he heard the horn, he knew it in a deeper way. He was right there again. You see, that's what this table is. Every time we come to this table, we hear the horn blowing in the distance of our salvation. Promising not just what was or what is, but what is to come. And see, every time we eat this table together, we share the meal that Jesus gave us, we remember a certain sadness of what had to happen to purchase our salvation. But there is this deep gladness for what we experience now and most importantly for what's coming. For what's coming. A marriage feast of the Lamb forever and ever. We'd like this section to dismiss and go out to the outer wall and come around this table. Communion servers, elders, did you come up? Deacons, this section, go to this aisle right here, come up. This section, go to that aisle, and you'll come up to this table and then 
filter right back in. Same with this section over there. Go out and come over to George. You don't have to be a member of this church to celebrate the meal that Jesus gave us. All you have to do is believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of all of your sins and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God to you, even eternal life. It's all you need to do. You could do it now. Come and welcome to your bridegroom. Come and welcome to Jesus, Messiah.